Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. In this episode of Tricycle Talks, we take a closer look at the latest issue of Tricycle and speak to some of its contributors. My first guest is scholar Seth Suiho Siegel, whose feature article situates ancient Greek ideals of human flourishing against Buddhist enlightenment. I talked to Seth about what's lost and what's gained when we make borrowed practices and beliefs our own. I then speak with writer Daisy Hernandez about the concept of mudita, or sympathetic joy, and why it matters more than ever to take pleasure in other people's happiness. And finally, I chat with National Book Award-winning poet Arthur Z about his poem, Wang Wei, his artistic process, and the relationship between poetry and meditation. Okay, so let's get started with Seth Siegel. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. You know, you and I have never met until now because you work with our features editor, Andrew Cooper, who's, I think, pretty brilliant. Absolutely. So your article is The Best Possible Life, and it's based on themes you write about in your recent book, Buddhism and Human Flourishing, A Modern Western Perspective. Can you summarize the article for us briefly? Well, I think there are a number of major premises and some minor premises, but I begin with talking about religions and spiritual paths in general. And I suggest that if a religion or philosophy or spiritual path endures for millennia and remains a live option for people over that length of time, that it always undergoes some degree of transformation. And that transformation occurs because of three processes. One is adherence to this spiritual path or religion or philosophy, dialogue, with participants in other traditions that are around at the same time. Second, that as it stays within one geographical locale, the culture itself evolves over time, meets new crises, and reaches new levels of sophistication in a variety of ways. And so that inhabitants of these new cultural eras have different existential concerns that need to be met by that religion and spiritual path. And then thirdly, as religion and spiritual paths move from being local ones to regional ones to global ones, and they cross boundaries of different nation states, for example, they have to then encounter conditions in those new cultures and adjust to them in some way. So if we take Buddhism as just an example of one such religion, we see how when it remained for the first millennium within India itself, it was in dialogue with all the other Indian traditions, with the Jains and with the Samkhyas and with the Vedantists and so forth. And so as it continued in that dialogue, and as Indian culture grew, we see a movement from just the single original Sangha to 18 early schools of Buddhism that all dispute various things, to the development of the Abhidharma, to the second and third turnings of the wheel with Madhyamaka and Yogacara, with the introduction of tantric practice, all that within the inn borders itself. And then as it moves to China or to Tibet, for example, we see it being affected by the indigenous cultures of those countries, so that in China, Taoism and Confucianism are affecting Buddhism. In Tibet, the indigenous culture there, which eventually develops into Bon, influences it. When we enter into Japan, the indigenous culture that eventually becomes Shinto influences it. So we're seeing a constant transformation of Buddhism as it moves through the millennia, as it moves from culture to culture. And that process continues now that Buddhism is coming to the West. And here I'm going to talk primarily about what, for better or worse, we call European descent Buddhism or convert Buddhism or meditation-centered Buddhism or white Buddhism or whatever you want to call it. But as you're talking about modern Westerners of European descent beginning to look at Buddhism, they have pre-existing beliefs that come to them through the whole Western tradition, through the Greco-Roman tradition, through the Judeo-Christian tradition, through the European Enlightenment tradition, through modern science, through romanticism, through all the different movements that have affected Western thought. We have these as part of the way we view and envision the world, and this is naturally going to affect how we interpret or understand Buddhism or what aspects of Buddhism we emphasize as being worthwhile for our own life projects and which ones seem to be more remote and and get kind of de-emphasized along the way. So in my experience over the last, say, 25 years, I've, I've heard probably thousands of Dharma talks in a variety of traditions, the Zen tradition, the insight meditation tradition, the Tibetan traditions, the secular Buddhist traditions, and so forth. And I've seen a kind of similarity in what I'm hearing from all of these talks. They seem to emphasize certain things and de-emphasize other aspects of the Buddhist tradition. 
And I think the ones that get emphasized are ones that are more congruent with Western culture, with materialism, with naturalism, and so forth. The ones that are more relevant to concerns of Westerners who don't experience wanting to stop rebirth as a major existential concern in their lives, but are interested in other kinds of issues. And I also think there's a very strong influence of Western preconceptions about what it means to live an ideal life or a good life or what it means to live well that come from the Greco-Roman tradition. And that's what I really wanted to stress in the article, how mm -hmm. Aristotle's ideas, for example, about living well kind of shaped the way we understand Buddhism today in the West. You talk about human flourishing. It's in the title of your book, too, in the subtitle of the book. And I'd like to quote the article for a moment. You describe eudaimonia as, quote, a superior level of well-being that is neither perfect nor permanent, but realistically reflects what we're capable of with sufficient time, effort, and practice. So that is a very different formulation than what we learn in Buddhism generally, what we call enlightenment or liberation or awakening something that is permanent and complete. Can you speak to that? You're a psychologist also, so I'm sure that in part is the lens through which you view this. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. So in the Aristotelian idea of eudaimonia or living well, there are, there are two components to it. One is a level of subjective well-being or happiness. And the second is an idea of excellence of living. A good life is a virtuous life, one in which you're exercising a number of moral and intellectual virtues. And in some ways, these moral and intellectual virtues are very much like the Buddhist idea of, of sila, or ethics, and the idea of prajna, or wisdom. Both of them are needed for some kind of flourishing or well-being. Not just surviving, and not just being pleasantly, smiley-faced, happy, but really being an exemplary human being in some objective way. And so I understand the Aristotelian tradition, no matter how happy you are, you can always be happier. And no matter how good you are, you can always be better. There's always room for growth and improvement and further development. And you never reach that epitome of perfection where you're done and you say, I don't have to grow anymore. You know, I'm totally selfless. I, I don't have to work on my selfishness anymore. Or I'm totally compassionate all the time. I never have to work at that. Or I always know what the right thing to do is in every situation without thinking. I don't have to deliberate about it using rational thought. There's never that point. And yet the Buddhist tradition points to a different kind of level of perfection. Although the the pathway to, say, a final enlightenment can be a very lengthy one that can last many, many lifetimes. There still is this final point where the work is done. There's no more rebirth. There's no more attachment to views or attachment to desire. The process of greed and hatred and ignorance has totally ceased. And there's a kind of omniscience also about what the right thing is to do in almost any situation. And we could go further and talk about other specifications in the Buddhist tradition of various powers and, and other kinds of abilities that one might acquire in this state. And it just seems to me that when I look at the people that I know and I encounter, or the people I look up to and admire, or the very best and greatest Buddhist teachers that I know, none of them have reached that degree of perfection or omniscience or selflessness, never getting angry, never getting irritated, always being calm, always being compassionate. None of them have reached that. And so you begin to ask yourself, well, if no one you can know or know about has ever reached that, what are the odds of you reaching that? Is that a realistic goal to go? Even if the Buddhists, say, achieved it historically, right? what are the odds of my being able to accomplish that? And it doesn't seem to be a worthwhile goal, as opposed to a more melioristic, gradualist approach of gradually getting better at all these things, gradually becoming more mindful, gradually becoming more compassionate, gradually developing greater insight into the interconnectedness of everything. I mean, I'm sure you've heard pushback from more traditional Buddhists and engage in discussion with them. You're very reasonable, but a very unreasonable part of me, perhaps it's even a religious part of me, still wants to hold out this possibility of complete enlightenment. And um, it makes me wonder, am I lowering the bar when I'm taken with this? You remain pretty much in the Buddhist camp. I mean, you cite Dogen, for instance, as an example of the kind of process that you're talking about as an ongoing process rather than an endpoint. But I get this feeling like I don't want to hesitate to hold out that possibility. Do you have any kind of conflict like that? No, I don't, for multiple reasons. Um, first of all, that ideal is an idea that we have. We're not there mm -hmm. yet. Right. So we can't even know what that actually is until we get there. Mm -hmm. So any idea that we have about enlightenment is going to be, to some degree, a wrong idea of what it might be. Yeah, And you might have a sense, as you move along the path and develop further, that your idea of what this enlightenment actually means 
changes as you develop. So in some ways, that doesn't concern me. I mean, if, if we're making progress in the path and there is a further step ahead of us, that will become clearer as we proceed along the path. And any ideas we have at the beginning of the path are going to be misleading to begin with. Right. It's interesting because I think of when I came to Buddhism, what my expectations were and how paltry they actually were as the path progresses. Yeah. Second, I think there's a real reason to question whether that image of what that final state is remains the same throughout Buddhist history. So if you look at the Pali Suttas, for example, and what they say about the nature of Nibbana, and you look at what, say, Dogen says about dropping off body and mind, are they the same state or not? Or are they pointing to somewhat different states? Or if we look at what the Japanese Zen masters in the 1930s thought about enlightenment while they were going ahead and supporting the Japanese war effort, is that what we mean by enlightenment? How is that different? Right. Does enlightenment today involve not only some degree of awakening, but also some degree of wokeness? Does this thing that we're aiming for actually change historically? So I just want to raise that possibility too, that there right. may not be some final pristine thing that's always the same throughout history. I mean, I, I don't want to imply that you're unaware of the tension that exists, though you write something very interesting in the article. You say, when we make borrowed practices and beliefs our own, something is gained and something lost. What emerges is both a continuation of the culture borrowed from and a betrayal of it. What would be a betrayal of it? How would we risk that? Well, one thing we're always doing as modern people, because we can't escape being modern people, when we read Dogen or when we read the suttas, we're trying to imagine ourselves back into another culture, another time, to understand what those writings meant for the people who wrote them. And I'm aware of how difficult that is. I've been reading Dogen for a very long time now, and I'm still baffled by many things that he writes. And my understanding has improved. You know, For a while, I, I wondered whether Dogen was just simply being ironic most of the time. And then I realized he wasn't, that he had a different conception of what time was than we did, a different conception of what space was than we did, a different conception of nature than we had. So when Dogen says that when you sit down and sit zazen, you are altering space and time, all of it, okay, that's a remarkable kind of statement. How does he mean that? And how do we as Westerners who understand Cartesian space and time or Newtonian or Einsteinian space and time, how do we understand that? I think there's only so far we can go. It's the same when you're looking at the Greeks and what did Aristotle mean by, by um, substance or being and so forth. We can, we can only try to guess based on what we sense about it right now within ourselves. And I think we're always getting it wrong to some degree. What it means for us is going to be different than what it meant for the original writers of the tradition. Right. So something is being lost. Yeah, you know, in the process of adaptation or bringing the teachings to our most pressing concerns, say something that keeps us up at night, like climate change, as opposed to being reborn a cockroach, you know, the, the climate change is more likely to keep us up at night. But you speak of threading the needle between two extremes, orthodoxy that is no longer relevant or cherry picking to meet our more immediate concerns in a sort of self-serving way. Can you talk a little bit about how you thread the needle? Well, I, I don't think there's any one way to do it. And I want to begin by saying that the first schism even begins during the Buddha's lifetime with his cousin Devadatta and so forth. But very early on, you have 18 schools of Buddhism all saying something else. Right. Does the self exist or, or does the self not exist? They were disagreeing amongst themselves. And today, there's not one voice that speaks for Buddhism. So you have very orthodox presentations, for example, of Tibetan Buddhism, or uh, Theravada Buddhism, but at the same time you have secular Buddhists and you have the so-called white Buddhism, all the Asian American Buddhisms that are also going through their own transformation simultaneously. Buddhism speaks with many, many different voices and they all address different aspects of the tradition in some way. So I think that you don't have to worry about one modernist tradition taking over and eliminating all the others. All those voices are always going to be there. Just like today in the Jewish community, you have a reform tradition that speaks to modernity but you also have a very vibrant ultra-Orthodox and Hasidic tradition that's holding on to traditional rules. I think all those options remain in some ways available for us. There are all these variants of Buddhism that share a family resemblance, okay? And there's no reason to say, well, one's a Buddhism and one's just a quasi-Buddhism or a neo-Buddhism. They're all expressions of that tradition that vary in a hundred different ways, just like the coronavirus has all its variants coming out right now. That's always going to be the case. And for one of them to say, we are the only true interpretation, I think is nonsense. So yes, I think you have to be careful 
you have to say, have I just picked a couple of things from Buddhism and mixed it with New Age thought and mixed it with Romanticism and so forth, and maybe some insights from quantum physics, and do I have some incoherent mishmash of ideas that don't really cohere together? Or if you take a huge demonic framework, is it possible to have a coherent framework that embodies some vision of the path, embodies, has some model of enlightenment, has some sense of what the virtues are and what needs to develop, has some sense of what ethics would be under those circumstances, and do they all cohere in some kind of way that's, that's meaningful for us today? You are a Zen practitioner, and this must be personal for you in terms of coming to an understanding of how Buddhism actually is coherent and makes sense and has meaning for you. How did this come about that you took this path toward trying to understand or work out an understanding of your tradition in this way? It's just very personal for me. My first 15 years of practice were primarily in the insight meditation tradition. Mm -hmm. I also attended retreats with Sakne Rinpoche. I also attended retreats with renegades like Tony Packer, for example, who mm -hmm. left the Zen tradition. So I had experience in a variety of traditions, but it was mostly rooted in Theravada and insight meditation. And then at some point in my life, I moved to a different state, and there wasn't an insight meditation sitting group available to me but there were some Zen groups local. And so I began to attend them. And I immediately became aware of differences between what I was being told in the insight meditation tradition and what I was being told in the Zen tradition about very basic ideas within Buddhism. And so they disturbed me for a long time. And so I spent a lot of time trying to understand which is right. How do I understand these differences? How do I make sense of them in my own practice? The other strand of this is when I began practice, even at the very beginning, I heard things that I didn't necessarily believe. You know, so if a teacher was talking about Brahmas and Devas and hungry ghosts in a literal sense, or talking about past lives in a literal sense, I didn't know if that was true or not. I, I tended to be a little bit skeptical, but my attitude was, well, keep an open mind. You know, you're just beginning practice, and it may be that 10 or 20 years from now, as you continue your practice, you'll have some insights into this that will make you realize that they're really saying something that's true. But after 25 years, I've kind of given up hope on some of these ideas. They just don't ring true to my own experience when I sit and meditate. These things that they talk about are not what's happening to me as I'm meditating. So it could be that meditation is different for each and every person, and that's just the way it is, and I'm just missing something that other people are getting. What do I do with that? I can hold that open as a possibility, but it's not my experience. So eventually what I began to develop was a, a sense of Buddhism that was really coherent with my own inner experience of what the path seemed like to me. You know, I want to jump to something else right now, just because they really jumped out at me in the article, and there's a context, and maybe you can provide it. You suggest right desire and right attachment. Uh, so, of course, that was a little bit provocative, but but it's contextualized. I'm leaving family, for instance, when attachment to it may be just what's needed right now at a time when families and social structures are weakened. But could you say something about right desire and right attachment? Absolutely. So I'm never quite sure how radical this is or how much it's already really part of this Buddhist tradition, but just not worded that way. Mm -hmm. But my first criticism of the Enlightenment ideal was its perfectionism, that we aspired to a level of perfection that I thought was really unachievable for at least almost everybody. But the second part is that there may be something wrong with the aspiration that it's pointing us towards that of course there are desires that are good desires, the desire to meditate, the desire to be more generous, the desire to read the Buddha's teachings. These are all good desires. And you have to have some way of discriminating what is a good desire from what is not a good desire. And so we have this whole framework you know, of what's kusala and akusala, what's skillful and unskillful. And a good deal of the practice is mindfulness of thoughts, behaviors, emotions, motivations as they arise, and then being able to discriminate if I follow this path, what will it lead to? Will it lead to greater well-being for myself and others? Or will it lead to disharmony? Or will it destroy my well-being in some kind of way if I really pursue it? And I think that's what we ought to be doing. And if a desire is one that actually doesn't disrupt any of our higher order goals and priorities and ideals, and it's one that we can actually attain with some effort, and it doesn't make our life one-sided in any kind of way, but allows us to live a kind of balanced and whole life, then maybe this is a wholesome desire, and, and maybe it's a right to want to pursue it. So it could be a right desire, but we also have to be careful in the way in which we pursue it. There can be rigid, obsessive, unyielding ways of pursuing things that are really unhealthy for us. You can think about the way a stalker, for example, might pursue his idealized love object. It's just a crazy way to go about it. 
And there are other ways that are more flexible, more open, so you're not being chained to a desire. The desire is just a gentle push in the direction in which you really want to go. So I think there are desires and attachments that aid us in our development, and we ought to cultivate them and nurture them and do it in the right way, and not just say, well, my aim is to have desire cease entirely, or not to have any attachments, because I think as human beings, we're social animals. We're meant to live in a world of attachment with other human beings, and those attachments could be good ones that aid us in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I think for us in the West who are living in a, a non-monastic lifestyle, I can see the family as a, as a crucible for cultivating all the virtues you want to cultivate, cultivating empathy and understanding and flexibility and, and everything you might want to cultivate, generosity and so on. I'd like to ask one final question because it's something that I keep thinking about. So you invite us to ask ourselves, what do we really want from practice? How would you answer that? Well, I think that the answer to the question changes throughout our lifespan. What I might have wanted from it 25 years ago is not what I want from it now. So when I first took up practice, I was going through a thin or sterile point in my life where I'd accomplished all the goals I had set out to at age 20. You know, I had a lovely wife. I had lovely children. They were going to college. I had a very successful practice as a psychologist. And yet I wasn't enjoying it as much as I thought I ought to. There was something I wasn't getting from it. I wanted something deeper or richer or more meaningful for my life. So I think that was the goal originally. And, and I found that in, in mindfulness practice, basically, and being intimately attentive to each moment as I was in it, deeply enriched the texture of my life and gave me that richness where I, I didn't have to get rid of my family and get a new family or quit my job and find a new job. I could find all the satisfaction in everything I was doing then. That's what it did for me then. Now, I think it's more about continuing to work on my self-absorption and my being able to be fully present with others, to give up more of myself so that I can be of more of service to the people around me. I think that's more the path for me right now. I'm constantly aware of the restrictions of my ego and how it prevents me in all kinds of ways from identifying with other people or connecting with other people or giving more to other people that I actually could give without impoverishing myself. So for me, that's what I'm looking at mostly from practice right now. And many times that occurs not in terms of much of worrying about distant people, but thinking about the people closest to me. In what ways am I really giving to them? In what ways am I holding back and not giving to them? Well, that's a nice way to end. Seth Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. I'd just like to remind our readers that The Best Possible Life is in the current issue of Tricycle. You might also want to pick up a copy of Seth's latest book, Buddhism and Human Flourishing, A Modern Western Perspective. So thank you, Seth. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so now let's talk to Daisy Hernandez. Daisy, welcome to Tricycle Talks. Thank you for having me. Where are you calling in from? I am calling in from a unusually sunny Ohio, southwest Ohio, Cincinnati. Oh, really? You teach in Miami, Ohio, is that right? I do, I do. So you used to live in the other Miami, though, the sunnier Miami, right? I have lived in the other Miami, the the sunny (laughs) year-round Miami, yes. How do the two compare? Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) Those are worlds apart, although people tend to think about the weather, but really Miami, and part of the reason I wanted to live there was I wanted to have the experience of living in Latin America without leaving the United States. (laughs) Well, that's about it. And Miami is really one of the best places to go for that. So um, it's it's its own country. Right. (laughs) Okay, so you wrote for us in the current issue an article called The Joy of Joy, And you write about the Buddhist virtue of mudita, which is typically translated as sympathetic joy or taking joy in the joy of others. And it's also a quality we're encouraged to cultivate in Buddhism. But you were suspicious of those translations, which is what got the article going. Why is that? I was suspicious. I I grew up with both Spanish and English, so I probably pay attention to translation a little bit more because of that. And so Mm -hmm. to me, it seems so strange that we didn't have a word in English for mudita, that it would exist um, in another language, but not in ours. And so it made me wonder, what does that say about our culture, about the way we live, that we don't have an exact translation or even you know, we have loving kindness where we can bring two words together very easily and it's become, you know, its own, I would say, movement almost. 
But we don't have that with Mudita. So that did make me suspicious. It, it, it opened up some possibilities, some questions that I pursued in the essay. Right. We also don't have the word schadenfreude, so we borrow it from German, which is really the inverse of Mudita, I would say. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's maybe a good thing we don't have that one. <laughs> but you also seem to have at the beginning, when you were first introduced to the practice, some skepticism about the practice itself. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I did. You know, it's an interesting idea to take joy in the joy of others. It seems like almost spiritually aspirational (laughs) to sort of another level of generosity. It seemed a little bit like, oh, yes, if I was very evolved, that's exactly what I would do. Right. (laughs) But, you know, more often ego comes in and, you know, you hear that something fabulous has happened to your best friend and you love her and you are absolutely happy. But there is that little voice that's like, why not me? (laughs) What about me? (laughs) So I often felt like, oh, Mudita is in contradiction with this almost default way that my mind works. Not just mine, but it felt like just mine at the time. Right. I, I always found it an excellent antidote to envy, which which is really what it seems to target. Because when I try it, I think, what is this? What is this resistance? And sometimes, oh, I'm feeling envy. Absolutely. So, you know, we often forget about joy. I mean, we don't really stop to experience it. And, you know, it occurs to me that it's an important part of the path, and you point out something very interesting, and I, and I agree. We can even feel guilty for feeling it, especially at a time when others are suffering so much. It can feel self-indulgent, and yet it's essential on the path. In our culture, we just often don't allow ourselves to feel joy. And you also say something about that. Why don't you pick that up? Yeah, I really noticed it this last year. I think we probably all did to some degree or another where you would hop online to catch up with a friend. And it seemed like the opening of every conversation I had was both of us saying, I'm well, relatively speaking, you know, I'm doing good. Everything is so terrible right now, but we're okay. You know, and there was just so much guilt. And sometimes I had friends say, even before they got to their happiness and their life going okay during this pandemic and during all the police brutality of last summer and continuing I would have friends preface it by saying, you know, I feel terrible saying this, but, you know, my own life as well. And I realized after a while we are having, you know, we have so much guilt that we have joy in our lives. And it has been made much more acute this last year with the pandemic Mm -hmm. and knowing that there is so much loss. And so I felt like I kind of became a little ambassador for joy at some point (laughs) where I began telling people, I'm so glad your life is going well. Like we need this joy, right? And especially for people who are dedicated to to activist work, that's like also a space where even before the pandemic, I feel like it's so easy for us to get together and denounce everything that is terrible and (laughs) make a long list of everything that needs to be done and what could be done and so forth that I often think we, we forget to be in, in our joy and our happiness. And so I felt like, yeah, this last year I was trying to be a, a kind of ambassador for joy and really for Mudita as well, because it nourishes us so deeply. Well, that's a long way from where you start in the article. Why don't you tell us about your first experience of practicing Mudita? Yeah, I think that what I talked about in the article was having a friend from 12-step actually talk to me about doing sort of a practice from that tradition of praying that everything you want for yourself, the other person might have. And so she didn't call it a mudita practice, but that's what I thought it was. And so I began by doing it as may my friend have joy today, like that kind of approach. But I did some big ticket items. And the one that I write about is sort of a very challenging friendship. And I was, you know, saying, may this person have her dream job, may she live near the ocean. And and it was a long list. May she have the most gorgeous house with sunlight every day. (laughs) And I quickly realized she actually had all of that already in her life, which made me hate her a little bit more. (laughs) Talk about spiraling into envy and and sort of, what about me? And so I, I shifted and I began with, may she have a good cup of coffee today, and may she have an easy drive to work. These sort of very mundane moments in life. 
And the practice was to do that every day for 14 days. I ended up doing it for over 20 days (laughs) because I needed a little bit more. But it did. It slowly began to shift where it was, I began to associate this person with joy in my mind rather than the difficulties that we were having in our relationship and our friendship. And I also started to just feel another experience of joy in my own life, right? Because then you start going through your day and, you know, something small would happen, like the cat would stretch on the sofa and I'd be like, oh, that is so beautiful. I hope, may she have a cat that stretches (laughs) so beautifully on her sofa. So yeah, it really, it really began to also shift how I walk through my days. Yeah, it's interesting. Toward the end of the reflection, you bring together joy and despair. Tell us a little bit more about that. How is it that those were kept separate for you and how did they come together? I think for me it was I I you know I did my first virtual meditation retreat like everyone else this past year probably. And we did have a mudita practice and I was really I was struggling because it was just it was a difficult week in terms of what was happening in the world. Um, I desperately wanted to go visit my niece, but, you know, because of the older family members that were with her, I couldn't do that. And so what actually came forward in the meditation was, was actually, um, an author whose novels I was going to teach in the fall. She's a German writer, Hertha Muller, and she grew up in Romania during the dictatorship. And that's what she writes about. And it seemed to me so surprising that her novels, her fiction was what I was thinking about when I thought about Mudita because they are such books about despair and about being interrogated by secret police. A lot of it is based on the author's own experiences and those of her friends. But for me, the delight was how she wrote about those experiences, that she was able to make this art that has not only outlived the time period, but also that it's come across the world. And here I am in the Midwest (laughs) teaching this to students that never thought about Romania and have never thought about it. A dictatorship before or fascism. And here, you know, here's somebody writing about fascism in this way that is gripping and beautiful and gives me a reason to get together with a group of students and talk about resiliency. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh my gosh, yes, I've been thinking that despair and mudita don't have anything to do with each other, but actually they're in close relationship. Have you ever practiced mudita for someone who wishes you ill, someone who you know does not like you? I tried a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't tried it since? I have, but but what I remember is that the first time, and I remember a teacher warning against that, warning that that, that would not be the first person you would want to test drive this. Right, like in meta practice or exactly. kindness practice. Right? Exactly. And because I am stubborn, that's what I tried to do. <laughs> What happened? What happened? I was really overwhelmed by my own emotions. This was a family member. You know, I would say it was actually probably a mudita slash meta practice (laughs) in some ways, but I was really overwhelmed by my own sadness and my, um, you know, just my own shock over how this person was treating me. This was an auntie who had stopped talking to me because I had come out as queer to my family. Mm-hmm. And and what actually ended up happening was that I just um I connected too intensely to the homophobia and the just bitterness that she was experiencing and that she had vocalized. Yeah, so I learned my lesson <laughs> the hard way. Um Right. That's sort of not where you want to start. Um you know, are, and you, are you approaching that now? Are you, are you coming closer to doing something like that? Or is it still somewhere off in the future? I think I have, at least in the sense, I'm just thinking now, not, not Mudita. Before Mudita, I would do Meta. <laughs> right, that makes sense. So I'm, I'm just thinking, yes, because I actually did send Meta to political figure. I won't even go there. <laughs> I think I can guess, but we don't have to say his name. But you know what? Um, I did that in the context of being at a retreat, like at a people of color retreat, Mm -hmm. while we were doing a kind of silent march through the meditation hall. And so I think it was possible to actually kind of do a practice of metta with that person in particular, because I was doing it in community. It was so intentional. I felt very held, you know? And so I think sometimes... 
I don't know if we talk enough about the importance of Sangha, you know, for these practices, you know, and right. now with the pandemic, I think Sangha is even more important. And so I feel like for me, that moment was possible because I was with a group of people and felt supported to try that practice. And it felt, it felt incredible, actually. It's not where I went every morning <laughs> for the right. last four years in this country, um, but it was very powerful that I was able to even approach it. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I, I miss the live support of Sangha really more than anything. But why don't I ask you one more question? Just how does your mudita practice look now? And what is it like both on and off the cushion? I think off the cushion, it's noticing those moments of joy in day-to-day -day life. And especially right now during the pandemic, where I'm not seeing people face-to-face, intentionally reminding myself, oh, you know what? We just baked muffins last night. They're somewhere out there, you know? <laughs> uh, may others have baked muffins as well tonight, you know? Yeah. It's, it's sort of like bringing awareness to the joy in my life. And then I've actually was seeking out on dharmaseed.org and in other places, seeking out some guided meditations for mudita that I could do on the cushion because I find that to be just very nourishing to have guidance to not necessarily do it alone. So it's a regular part of your daily practice now, or? I think off the cushion it is. Um, yes. And on the cushion, it's a little bit different. There's sort of like a lot of different things that I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think of Sharon Salzberg talking about all the time, and she's said it many times about uh, practicing the Brahma Viharas on the subway platform. It's a, it's a good place to do it. <laughs> you look at some person over it, you know, to your left or right, and you start wishing them well. It really changes one's attitude, I think. Absolutely, yes. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Daisy. It's always a delight speaking with you. And your article is The Joy of Joy in the Current Issue of Tricycle. Thank you so much for being such a great contributor. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So now our final guest, Arthur Z. Arthur, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. We're really delighted to run your poem, Wong Wei, in the current issue of Tricycle. The poem is from 1976, and it's included in your upcoming collection, The Glass Constellation. Would you mind reading it for us? It'd be a pleasure. Wang Wei, at my window, the rain raves raves about dying and does not hear in the bamboo a zither which plucked inebriates the birds and brings closer to the heart the moon thank you so much that's really beautiful i'd like to start by asking you who wang wei was and why did you name the poem for him the poet Wang Wei is a Zen Buddhist, a Chan Buddhist poet who lived in Tang Dynasty, China. I believe his dates are 701 to 762. He was a renowned poet and painter and also the inventor of the monochrome landscape scroll tradition in Chinese painting. Mm -hmm. So he's a multi-talented artist and his poems are very famous for stripping the essentials down to the bare minimum. And in his poetry, there are rarely people, but there are presences of people. I named the poem Wang Wei because I wrote this poem in 1975. As you mentioned, it was published in 1976. And I named it Wang Wei because it was after his style. And I had a particular poem that shadows my poem, which is called The Bamboo Grove. And it's about a person who enters a bamboo grove. It gets very dark. He sits there, he meditates, and he starts playing the zither. And when he does that, he also is moved to start chanting or singing. And then the moon comes and shines on him. So that was a really early poem of mine. And I wanted to name it after Wang Wei because it was an homage to his work. And you can see from the poem I just read, there are human presences like the window or the zither, but there isn't like in a lot of Western poetry, the eye doing certain things or 
you know, uh, asserting a self in the landscape. Wang Wei likes to dissolve the self into the landscape. So that's why I named it after him. So we were discussing it among ourselves, and we know that you use the pronoun my, and then the narrative continues without the presence of a particular narrator. Is that fair enough? Yes, absolutely. So I was reading Sightlines, the the collection you won the National Book Award for, and I was struck at how far the poetry had come from that particular style. I'm still trying to make sense of your use of punctuation and juxtaposition. In an interview with Kenji Liu, a fellow poet, you talked to him about destabilizing the text. Are these tactics a part of that? And what do you mean by destabilizing? Um, well, several things. I think in Sightlines, there are, as you say, these one-liners that are mysterious and they come and go. And for a reader of a normal text of poetry, an American reader is used to reading a poem and then another poem and another poem, and they each have titles. So in Sightlines, it's a bit disorienting or destabilizing to read a poem and then flip the page, and there is a dash and a one-liner like a haiku, and then a dash. And for a reader, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, what is this? What's going on here? And that moment of destabilization or destabilizing the text because it's like, well, wait a minute, what is this? Is this right. part of a poem? Is this a sightline? What is going on here? To me, that actually connects fundamentally with Zen Buddhism and the whole idea of disorientation in order to reorient and re-envision the world. So sometimes it's necessary to sort of like have the ground pulled out from under us and sort of respond by saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? What am I seeing? What is actually happening? And in the course of the book, these one-liners occur a number of times, but then they all come back in the title poem. So for me, that's like the revelation. That's like the equivalent to a moment of Satori where, oh, these lines that didn't seem to make any sense, suddenly they are all sight lines coming together in this one poem through space and time. I have to say that had a real impact on me. I mean, when I got to Sightlines as the penultimate poem in the collection, all of a sudden I saw these lines that I recognized, and it's as if I had read them years ago or something. They just came back, and they all sort of fell together. And I don't know how to describe the feeling that I had, but it was sort of like coming home, like, oh, I know these lines. But then I saw them completely differently. I don't know what you intended, but that's the impact it had on me. That's exactly what I intended, and I'm frankly thrilled to hear that because it's like this convergence of things that at first don't appear to go together or have no connection, and then somehow they all come together, and that kind of mystery and force of impact is, that's exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah, I I thought that was so impressive because afterwards I, I couldn't stop thinking about that. I also like to ask you about the words you strike through. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about that? You, for instance, will write something and then you rethink it, but you don't delete the word. You simply strike through it. Can you talk about that a little bit? I arrived at this actually through a collaboration with a visual artist and sculptor here in Santa Fe, Susan York, who's a practicing American Buddhist, and she meditates every day. And she did these layer graphite drawings of like 40 or 50 layers of graphite And it might just look like full and empty to somebody because half of the page is just these rich graphite lines, and then the top is completely empty. As I was collaborating um, with Susan, I wanted to see and explore her process. And I liked how the process of layering was incorporated into the final product, into the final graphite drawing. And I went home and I asked myself, oftentimes a poem in English is presented like, here's the experience, this is what happened, and there's the kind of narration. And I thought, well, if I use a voice, and the person thinking might say something and realize that that's not accurate or not right, and then they want to revise it, and they change what they say next, maybe I could incorporate the strike-through lines to create a kind of graphite texture that came out of my collaboration, but show the voice sort of searching or trying to find what is truly necessary, uh, what needs to be said. So at one point, 
the speaker might think of a certain kind of fish and say, no, that's not right. That doesn't exist in New Mexico. And then it's struck through and it's revised. So I wanted the reader to experience that tension between maybe what a person thinks and what they say or what a person says. And then they think, no, that's not quite right. It's this. And to catch that kind of nuance and action and process. Right. That's what I was going to say. I mean, the process becomes a little bit more transparent, but I'm interested in the word accuracy. You said accurate. Is this an attempt to get ever closer to the experience that's described? Absolutely. And I wanted to be open to the idea that there's not necessarily a finality, but in the way that we go about our own lives, thinking about certain things or saying certain things, you know, you might say something and regret it and you want to revise it. And rather than edit it out, I wanted that tension again between what one says and what one sort of thinks or feels. And that fidelity to accuracy to me is kind of a inner fidelity. And I hope it's okay to tie to another Buddhist kind of reading is that sense of mindfulness and attention, the cure to language and the cure to how we live and uh, speak and act in the world. I want to ask you a question that our editorial assistant, Emily DeMaio-Newton, had for you. Emily asks, how does the concept of place infiltrate your poems? Are they often influenced by landscapes you're in when you write them or by other landscapes? And Emily adds to that. And has this changed at all during the pandemic? Wow, what a great question. And this is probably a 30-minute response, which I can't do. <laughs> Let me say that the issue of place is something fascinating and inspiring for me. I've lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico for 45 years, and I travel a lot. But I like to layer places in a way that consciousness gets layered in my poems. And I don't have a, a fixed response here because sometimes there will be a particular place and I'll just want to dig in. And an example is a poem called Pig's Heaven Inn, which I wrote in China in the Yellow Mountains. And I was there for 10 days for a poetry festival and it was so fascinating every day. I was writing images and phrases, and I wanted to keep the poem located there. But oftentimes, I like to layer, or again, I'm going to use the word destabilize a text, because I like to think that conceptions or experiences of place are maybe more complex and deeper than just like, oh, I went to Taos, New Mexico and visited, and I could write a poem there. I think the person who goes there brings all sorts of associations and anticipations and past experiences. So oftentimes I'm bringing events that happen in different places and weaving them together to think about, are there points of convergence? I want to quote you from the interview that you did with Kenji Liu for Tricycle um, that appeared on our website last year. You said to him, poetry has a crucial role to play in our lives, society, and the world. It helps us slow down hear clearly, see deeply, and envision what matters most in our lives. That sounds a bit like meditation to me, but how do you see poetry and meditation as related if you do? And either way, I'd just like you to speak to that comment. I think poetry and meditation are intimately connected. When I'm writing a poem, um, I guess I want to personalize it and say, if I know where the poem is going, I'm in too much control and there's less surprise, there's less discovery. And so for me, writing poems is very personal and intimate and deep. And as I'm writing, it is a kind of meditative experience where I'm shedding attachments or preconceptions about the world. And I'm sort of digging deeper inside myself not knowing where I'm going, and that can be a little scary. But again, trusting somehow that the language, that an image, that a musical phrase, that some kind of spell will emerge and start to shape the language. I'm giving a Buddhist slant here. I don't feel like I'm in charge of my material in the sense of shaping it like a sculptor, say, who has a preconception. I'm more like mining through meditation, through peeling off layers to discovering what's deep and what's essential and giving the language space for it to merge and rise up. And in many ways, I feel like I'm trusting the language and it's taking me to discover new places. And again, that connects with meditation. 
And in terms of poetry's connection to the world, you know, it's a cliche to say with the internet, we live in such a fast-paced world. People want things and they want things now. I'm thinking of Ezra Pound, who once wrote, nothing is made to live or endure, but to sell and sell quickly. <laughs> well, poetry stands in opposition to that commercial <laughs> culture. You know, poets are not going to make money doing this. It's something they need to do. There's an inner necessity. And that attention and care with language carries over to how poets speak and act and connect with people in the world. And in that sense, I think poetry has such a crucial role to play. And considering all the erosion, corrosion of language we've had in the last four years, we need that sort of cleansing and that intensification and return to clarity and attention and focus. And, and poetry is, for me, a crucial vehicle that provides that. I have one last question. I was just curious, do you have a particular Buddhist practice? I don't. You know, it's funny, I have friends who are American Buddhists, and they, like, ask me, expecting a kind of Buddhist practice. And I think my practice is to get up every morning in the dark with a thermos of coffee and write poems. I guess that's my Buddhist practice. Instead of going to Zazen and doing meditation, I like to get up when I'm still not quite fully awake. And again, in that state, I'm in a kind of dreamlike state, and I'm not really in control of the language, and I don't want to be in control of the language. So I want to be taken somewhere and discover something. So in a way, I would say writing is my Buddhist practice. I'm not formally trained. I think that counts. And anyway, I'm glad you get up every morning and do it. Somebody has to. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. And I'm going to look forward to The Glass Constellation, your upcoming collection of poems that'll be out in April, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Well, maybe we'll catch up then. It would be a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your program. You've been listening to Seth's We Host Siegel, Daisy Hernandez, and Arthur Z. talk about their contributions to the spring 2021 issue of Tricycle. In our next episode, I'll be chatting with Tequila Chunyalpa, head of the LOCA Initiative an organization connecting faith leaders who are committed to tackling climate change. We'd love to hear your thoughts about our podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>